Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you um, for opportunities like this to dive deep into some pretty uh, thick, uh, deep waters. God, I ask um, for myself, would you just uh, lead me, guide me by your spirit, guard my lips. I I want to only teach that which is in line with your truth from your word. And God, today, as we come across this story, which for many of us uh, might be a familiar story. Maybe we grew up hearing the story of Samson and, and, and some of this is familiar. God, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see uh, what it is you want to say to us today. Uh, may all that we do today be focused on Jesus and his glory. Would you give us soft and teachable hearts? We pray this all in Jesus' really good name. Amen. You know, as we're talking about this, this subject of, of Samson and his desires, we're going to talk, we're going to see as we read through this passage, you saw it a little bit right now, but as we read through this entire story, we're going to see that Samson is a man who's really driven by his desires. And so I want to talk about the subject of our desires. And, and, and whenever you're talking about the subject of desires, if you're a pastor, if you're, if you're you know, paying attention at all, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that goes around all the time about desires. And so what I want to do is I want to just start with the obligatory C.S. Lewis quote. I want to get it out of the way right at the top of the sermon. And then I want to move on with the rest of the sermon that I want to, to preach. So let's just do this. Join with me. It says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Okay, great. Now we're done. I've done my duty. Uh, I had not committed pastoral malpractice by skipping out the most important C.S. Lewis quote about desires, but let's move on. Okay, think about your desires. Think about what you want. Think about being driven by those desires. Those desires can be something simple, like a a desire for a good meal. You ever had that where, where you have sort of a craving, and then all of a sudden, that's like the only thing that you can think about eating, right? All of the, 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 the pregnant and expecting moms in the room know what I'm talking about. Uh, you just, you have that, that craving. Actually, I will say this, uh, you know, we, we try to practice fasting regularly as a church, and the last few times that I've fasted, I, I'm always struck, it's not how much that I'm hungry, it's just how much that I want to eat delicious food. Anybody ever have that experience? Or am I particularly sinful? Okay. Just those desires, they, they just kind of well up within you. It could be something simple like for food, it could be something much, much deeper and fundamental like the desire for relationship, the desire to be loved. But we are very often, in, in, in more ways than we even realize it, consciously, subconsciously, we are driven by our desires. And so the big idea for today that we're going to see is this. As fallen humans, all of our desires, every one of our desires, they're affected 
and infected by sin to some degree, some more than others. But, but all of our desires are affected by sin. But in Christ, our desires are reordered to lead us to satisfaction in him. All of our desires are meant to lead us to find our satisfaction in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to see. As, as we read through this story of Samson today, I'm just going to encourage you to pay careful attention to the language of desire. Be cognizant, be aware of desire sort of language. Now, just to remind you, last week, we, we saw that Samson, uh, his birth was announced in dramatic fashion. His mother was barren, couldn't have children for years and years and years. An angel, the angel of the Lord shows up and announces his birth. This is very dramatic. This, this uh, formerly barren woman conceived, gives birth to a son. This is amazing. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to take this special vow of purity and dedication before the Lord. I mean, if you're reading through Judges chapter 13, you, you have really high expectations Expectations are sky high. But as we turn the corner into chapter uh, 14, Samson is going to pull a Seattle Mariners and devastate those expectations like instantly, okay? Hey, now listen, it's fair. That's fair. I, I watch him. I'm paying attention. We're going to see his, his desires lead him to be a violent, self-obsessed womanizer not some godly rescuer redeemer that we would be expecting. So verse one, we're just gonna go straight through this story. I make some comments along the way. And then as we get to the end, I'll, I'll, I'll try to pull together a few themes here. So Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. So Timnah, the city that he, he lived in, in Zorah, this is about six miles away. So you're going to see this, this traveling back and forth in this story. Actually, through the remainder of the Samson narrative, you're going to see this language of he went down, he came back up. It's a, it's a pretty uh, common, repetitive uh, story device that the author uses to show us the movement in the story. So Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, these are the people that had conquered over Israel, were ruling over them. And he saw one, and he came up, and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. So if you're keeping track of the language of desire, there's a pretty easy one. Don't miss that one, right? He saw the girl. He wants the girl. And in accordance with custom, he says, Mom, Dad, you got to go get her. She's the one. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? You remember that God had given a very clear command that the people of Israel were not to intermarry with people from the surrounding nations because it's not about race, it's not about ethnicity, it, it's about worship. That the hearts of God's people will be turned away from him, worship of him. Well, and then this idea of the uncircumcised Philistines, the, the, the Jewish people were not the only people in the ancient Near East to practice circumcision. It was actually more widespread throughout the region. But the Philistines, this people group that likely came from the Aegean area, they were a seafaring people. They, a lot of their, their pottery and their armor and the, the, the relics we have, it all has lots of like uh, sea serpents and dragons on it. They're, they're kind of an ocean-faring, warring sort of a people. And, and the, the Israelites are like, man, these are, these are uncircumcised Philistines. This is like the lowest of the low social status. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. 
for she is right in my eyes. Now, if you've been paying attention throughout our Judges series, what does that remind you of? Reminds you of the common refrain throughout the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so here is Samson, the great promised deliverer of God, falling into the exact trap that all of the Israelites are falling into. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Okay, if you're underlining or taking notes, just circle that because, my goodness, we have to dive into that. We're going to come back, but, but just hold on to that. For he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Okay, here's what I want you to see, first of all, just contextually. The Philistines are ruling over Israel, and it says that the Lord is seeking an opportunity against them. Now, why is that? I pointed out last week that when it says that the Philistines are ruling over Israel, here it says it again. You know what's not happening? The people of Israel are not crying out for help. Throughout the book of Judges, over and over and over again, it says that the people groaned or they, they wept or they were uh, oppressed because of the slavery that they were under. But here, they don't actually seem to care that much. The other thing you can notice is the Philistines, they're deep in Israel. Timnah, the city where, where Samson saw this girl, that's deep in the heart of Israel territory. This isn't like they're out on the outskirts. Like they're all the way deep down in. They've, they've basically taken over the whole area. Samson's actually kind of free to just move around. So there's a high degree of uh, 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 syncretism, a high degree of blending between the Philistines and the Israelites. In fact, it would probably, if you were uh, coming you know, to, to visit that time period in the world, this area, you'd have a hard time telling who was who. Tim Keller, a pastor and author, uh, points this, he points this out. He says, in short... Israel's capitulation to the Philistines is far more profound and complete than any of their previous enslavements. In the past, Israel groaned and agonized under their occupations by pagan powers because their domination was military and political. But now, the people are virtually unconscious of their enslavement because its nature is that of cultural accommodation. The Israelites do not groan and resist their captors because they have completely adopted and adapted to the values, mores, and idols of the Philistines. So let that be a lesson for us to see that they, they were actually fine. They had made peace with their enslavement. All right, now Samson's parents are sad they don't like it. Samson seems like a convincing guy. It seems like they're going to go along with it. Verse 5. Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. I mean, granted, who of us couldn't say the same thing, right? It's just just walking, hanging out. Maybe it seems like contextually he's separated from his father and mother. They're not with him right now. Just hanging out, a young lion. 
came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Again, who hasn't torn apart a young goat even this last week? But, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So that's why I think he's, he's, diff- he's separated from his father and mother traveling. You know how it is. You're traveling with your parents and they're slow. Your dad drives slow. You know how it is. And you, you kind of pull ahead and then he, he rips this lion apart and he didn't tell his parents what he had done. Now, whenever people in like, you know, uh, you know kids Bibles or uh, the, like the Bible movies or TV shows that they make, they always show Samson as this like big buffed out dude. I'm going to confess to you, I have long thought that maybe he wasn't this big buffed out dude, that he was like a smaller guy, like maybe like five foot nine, maybe like just not that big, not that impressive looking. <laughs> because here, here's the deal. He, he didn't tell his father and his mother what he'd done. Like, he just, I think he was surprised. I think he's having this moment, like, what in the world just happened? Like, if this was the superhero thing, this isn't the Incredible Hulk. This is like Peter Parker, the skinny little high school kid who just, like, climbed up a wall and beat some bad guys. Like, what in the world just happened? And his voice cracks because he's kind of a nerd. You don't have to accept my envisioning of, of Samson, but I, there, there's definitely something to be said here of him saying, like, what in the world just happened? And we are clearly told that it was the spirit of the Lord that rushed upon him and gave him strength that was supernatural, superhuman, even if you want to use that word, beyond his natural ability. Verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. He's still crushing hard. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So he's commuting back and forth, doing this six-mile commute on foot. And it says he, he turned aside, like he went out of his way to see the carcass of the lion. Now, why would he do that? Maybe stopping to admire his handiwork? Maybe stopping to, like, remind himself of he is a big, tough guy after all? I don't know. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands, gross, uh, and went on eating as he went. Uh, in, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, honey and honeycomb is, is, is um, something that would be you know, akin to us, like, like candy or, or a dessert, a piece of chocolate cake. I mean, this is the delicacy of the ancient world. And so you would, you would grab a piece of honeycomb. It doesn't have a ton of nutritional value, but it's sweet and it's delicious. And so he sees his handiwork, he scoops some honey out, and he's got a, I mean, a big handful of honey, eating it as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. Why did he not tell them? Who remembers? Why? It's unclean. That was one of three parts of his Nazarite vow. He took this, he was born into this special vow before the Lord. He's not going to cut his hair ever. He's not going to drink alcohol or even uh, eat grapes and touch no unclean thing, which a dead animal, according to Jewish law, Mosaic law, is an unclean thing. So not only did he violate his own conscience, but you remember that his mother was under that same vow as well, and he just violated her conscience and her vow as well. Verse 10, his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast 
there, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So there's great interaction, interchange. His dad's going down. You know, the dads were involved in the negotiation of marriages and all this stuff. And the word here, though, the operative word here is feast. The word in the Hebrew there for feast is mishtah. And it literally means to drink. So what kind of a feast, what kind of a party is Samson throwing here? A, drink, a bachelor party. Thank you, Jay. Yes. It is, a, it is a drinking party. And he's got 30 companions. And, and I just will say it. Rarely does anything good happen when there are 30 bros and a bunch of alcohol flowing. But here we are. We're, 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 ten, we're 10 verses into this chapter. And now Samson has already broken the second of his Nazarite vows. If he himself is not drinking, which is, is unlikely, he's at least participating in a, a wild feast, a wild mishtah, a wild drinking party. For so the young men used to do. Just, just doing what the young men do. 4,000 years of human history. Some things haven't really changed, have they? Verse 12. And Samson said to them, now let me put now a riddle to you. I just kind of imagine he's slurring his speech just a little bit. He's boasting. He's, he's going to stand up and be the life of the party. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast, by the way, they did wedding parties right back then, seven days. And you find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Like I'm going to give everybody here a suit. I'm going to buy everyone a suit and some some nice, uh, you know, silk undergarments. But if you cannot tell me what it is, well, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Bring it on, bro. They've been drinking too. They're ready. It's just, you know, brosmanship. Just one upsmanship after another. You tell us the riddle. We're going to solve it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, you and I all know, okay, what's he talking about? We just read the lie and the honey. We're, we're, we're in the know. Have you ever had one of those riddles where you were not in the know? And you're like so frustrated. <laughs> I just want to know. I just want to figure it out. And then when you do find it out, it's like, duh, I should have known that. So this wedding feast is going on for seven days. And in three days, it says, they could not solve the riddle. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, or we will burn you in your father's house with fire. Okay. Um, I just want to remind you, Samson is in a minute, he's going to destroy some Philistines. But we shouldn't have too much sympathy for them. Because they are, this is a a, a brutal, violent, uh, ungodly people group that has enslaved the Israelites. The Israelites are kind of comfortable with it. This is just exhibit A. If you don't tell us what the riddle is, we're going to burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Trying to, trying to embarrass us? Trying to make us go broke? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. Um, this is a side point, but uh, in marriage, speaking in absolutes like that rarely goes well, Right? You, sh- you always, you never, you should never say you always, you never, because it always ends up in trouble, right? Like, 
you only hate me, you don't love me, you put a riddle to my people and you've not even told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I haven't even, I haven't even told my father and mother, I'm going to tell you. And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. <laughs> That's commitment, right? So like day four, five, six, seven. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard, then she told the riddle to her people. This language of Samson being pressed hard is going to come up again and again throughout his story. And it just goes to show for a strong guy, he's awfully weak. Verse 16, the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and stronger than a lion? Notice how they answer his question with a question. That's just like, that's just like digging it in, right? That's just, mm, that's insult to injury. And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, (sighs) oh man, where's Shane? How come I didn't give this passage to you? Let's just also say in my experience in marriage, (laughs) cow references to your spouse also doesn't usually go well. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Actually, uh, one commentator, actually two commentators I read pointed out that there are actually um, sexual implications here. He's saying that if you, if you had not, you know, if my wife had not been unfaithful already, if she had not um, slept with one of you, if you'd not uh, been sexually unfaithful, you wouldn't have found this out. So he's uh, kind of cut at a deeper level more angry at a deeper level. This is immediate unfaithfulness. They haven't even really finished the wedding feast yet. This is the first week of their marriage and there's already, in, in his mind, in his eyes, uh, infidelity. And he blames those men. Verse 19, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Again, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle in hot anger. So there's some more language of desire. Hot anger. Not just any anger. Burning hot anger. He went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now, next week we'll continue the story. This is as far as we're going to go today, but just so much here. First of all, it says the spirit of the Lord is involved. Remember it said that God was seeking an opportunity to confront the Philistines. And here we have the first battle, as it were, between the people of God and the oppressors. But whereas Gideon and Deborah and even even guys like Jephthah, they, they gathered armies together, they gathered groups of people together, here's Samson acting alone. One single solitary rescuer. One solitary redeemer. But we're also seeing this like sinful anger, loss of temper, loss of control. And yet at the same time, we are told in the same breath that God's involved. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator who's been very helpful to me in this Judges series, he says this, the text then is clear. What we are dealing with is not Samson's temper, but the spirit's power. If this seems brutal, we must simply live with it. 
We have already seen that when Yahweh delivers his people, he does not always dip his saving acts in Clorox and sprinkle them with perfume. To be delivered from evil will frequently be messy. And actually, I think that should be of great encouragement to us because it shows us that God himself is not afraid of the mess and the mire and the muck that we have made of our lives, of our communities, of our world. God's not scared off by those messes. So let's, let's just think for a minute here. What, what can we learn? Okay, okay, lots of, um, you know, there's like positive examples you can give. This is going to be one of those negative examples that we're going to want to learn from, right? I mean, by my estimation, in, the, in these uh, 20 verses, there are at least 10 sinful actions, attitudes, and behaviors that we can see from Samson. He's lustful after the Philistine woman. He defied God's commandments about marriage. I, I believe this is possible, but I think there's self-admiration in turning aside to see the dead lion again. He's going to go admire his handiwork. He broke his Nazarite vow clearly by touching a dead animal. He violated his parents' conscience by serving them honey that came out of the dead animal as well. He lied to his parents about the source of the honey. Uh, It wasn't an overt lie, but he didn't tell them where it came from. And how many of you know that omitting the truth is a lie? A half-truth is a whole lie, and just silence, not giving information that would be relevant, that's also lying. He broke his Nazarite vow uh, about alcohol. Not only did he break the vow, but again, this is possible, but I'm, I'm convinced that he was himself drunk at that party, which is a sin for anyone, not just Nazarites. He's boasting and prideful and taunting, giving this riddle at the wedding feast, and then uh, a, a rage fit, a burning, hot, anger rage fit. So those are 10 things that I see uh, in the life of Samson, just in this one chapter. What a disappointing rescuer, amen? <laughs> Angel announcing the birth and barren mother and he's going to be a Nazarite and just absolute train wreck. I think he embodies what we see in First John chapter 2 where the Apostle John writes that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Think Samson embodies that verse? Desires or, or the... Some of the older translations would say the lusts. The lusts of the flesh, he wants this woman. The lusts of the eyes, he sees her. And the pride of life, he's feeling big and strong and powerful. This is, this is Samson. This is Samson. Now, here's, here's where we really need to dive in. Because I want to talk about our desires. But we have to deal with a pretty significant theological point that is raised by this story. And so I want to do this by answering a series of questions. I have five questions that I want to answer here. And the first one is this. When we see that Samson is very, very sinful, and yet we are explicitly told twice that God is involved, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, the Lord is seeking an opportunity to confront the Philistines, we have to wrestle with the question, how sovereign is God? How sovereign is God? In fact, we have to wrestle with a more specific question. Is God sovereign even over sin. Now, all Christians would, or I would say should, affirm that God is sovereign. 
And the Bible is very clear. He rules over all things. It says that, that you know, he knows how many hairs are on your head. It says he, he appoints the, the days of our lives. He fixes the boundaries of our lives. Uh, it talks about the wind and the waves obey him, that he, he spoke the universe into existence. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not even a blade of grass grows apart from his will. I mean, all sorts of things, particularly about nature, all Christians should, and, 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 and I should say should, affirm the sovereignty of God. The question, though, gets a little bit more sticky, and Christians start to disagree over the subject of God's sovereignty when it comes to the idea of people who make choices and who have volition and who have wills. Is God sovereign even over their will? Is God sovereign even over their sinful will? And the more you start reading the Bible, the more you start coming across things like Samson here. Samson, this, this sinful guy, and yet it says, all this was from the Lord. All of it was from the Lord. God's doing something here. You go back and you read stories about Joseph in Genesis, where Joseph says to his brothers, the ones that sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. You start reading stories like in Exodus where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then in the next verse, it says that God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to do it. I'm going to actually turn his heart hard so that I can display my glory. You see passages like in Isaiah 10, and I could give um, literally dozens of examples, just a few, but in Isaiah chapter 10, there's an interesting one where God says, he's speaking through this prophet Isaiah. He says, my people Israel have been sinful. So I am going to raise up Assyria to judge Israel. So God is going to raise up this, this nation, Assyria, a, a wicked, pagan, very, very brutal civilization to bring judgment on the people of Israel for not remaining faithful to me. And that's in chapter 10, early in chapter 10. You keep reading in chapter 10, then God says, and now Assyria, I'm going to judge you for this wicked thing you did to my people Israel. <laughs> what? You read in like Acts chapter 4 where it talks about uh, the betrayal of Jesus and the arrest of Jesus and being put to death at the hands of wicked and lawless men. It says it was all ordained by God to bring about our salvation. So, So friends, we have to wrestle with this idea that in some sense, in a, in a way that we don't fully understand, and I won't claim to fully understand, we have to say the answer to this question, is God sovereign even over sin? The answer must be yes. Because your choices are either, if God is not sovereign over sin, then either he's not God, or because, because he's not actually capable or he's not able to bring about the promises that he's given to us. Promises like in Romans 8 that says he'll work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. One author, Pastor R.C. Sproul, says this, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. If there is even one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside of the scope of God's sovereign ordination, we cannot have the slightest confidence that any promise God has ever made about the future will come to pass. Okay, now, this will challenge many, if not all of us, for two reasons. Number one, it will challenge us. I'll go in reverse order. Number two, it's going to challenge us because we are Americans, and dadgummit, nobody tells us what to do. 
We are the master of our own fate. We are the captain of our own ship. We are committed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And doggone it, if you want to be a, a, an astronaut or an NBA player, then you just got to follow your heart and you can do it. I wanted, I'm serious. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to be an NBA player so bad. My desires were messed up, okay? I did not realize that I was going to grow to the great hulking stature of five foot nine and not be able to like even touch the bottom of the net, much less dunk, right? We, 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 we swim in a cultural water that just says we're in charge of everything we do. But, okay, so that's, that's one thing. We need, to, we need to fight through that. But the number two reason, or the number one reason, let me get my numbers order, in order here, The number one reason why we struggle with this idea of God's sovereignty, even in our choices and even over sinful choices, is because we also have this deep, profound sense that, well, I'm a responsible moral agent. I have moral agency. I have choice. I have a will. Some might even say, I have a free will. I don't think that language is the most helpful because I believe our will is corrupted. I don't know that you're as free as you think you are. But we can't get around this idea, well, I feel this strong sense of responsibility and agency. And so, so it leads us to the second question, well, if, God's, if God is so sovereign over sin and God's responsible for Samson's choices and he's working with Samson's choices, well, then is God responsible for sin? This one's going to be easy, Sound City. Is God responsible for sin? No. No. Why is that? Is this just a puppet show? Is God forcing people to sin? Is he, is he you know, just kind of manipulating things? The answer is absolutely no. Samson is clearly responsible for the choices in this story. He clearly has agency throughout the pages of the scripture. Even those examples that I just gave earlier, it, it says, you know, you meant, like for Joseph's example, he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Somehow, at the same time, there is both God's ultimate sovereign will and the will of man involved. God is not responsible for sin. The Bible makes this clear, both Old Testament and New Testament. Ezekiel 18 says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Friends, you are responsible for the choices that you make. James 1, 13 and 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, what's the word, Sound City? Desire. What do you want? Okay, so you're telling me God is sovereign over all things, even sovereign over sin, but you're also telling me that humans are responsible and they have agency and they have choice and they have will How does that work? How do God's sovereignty and human agency work together? That's our third question for this morning. And the answer is, I have no idea. So let's go to the fourth question. (laughs) Let Let me actually just say, this is a profound challenge. It is ultimately a mystery because you and I are not God. We don't necessarily see all the inner mechanisms, all the inner workings of how these things work together. Somehow they do. Let me also say, though, it's not just Christians that struggle with this idea. Okay? If you study the history of philosophy 
secular, non-Christian philosophy. If you read Rene Descartes, you go all the way back to Aristotle, Plato, people like that, you're going to see people grappling with the idea of, okay, are we truly free? Do we really have free choices? Or is there something like fate that determines everything that we do? Do you know where we see this played out right now more than anywhere else in our modern 21st century scientific era? Genetics. Genetics, okay? Raise your hand if you have genes, okay? I don't mean blue genes, I mean DNA. Uh, what is it? No, never mind. I was going to try to say nucle- something nucleic acid. Dinucleic acid? Diroxy, thank you. I knew there would be at least one. You just outed yourself as like the nerdiest in the room, Keith. Thank you. I pass that on to you. Thank you. I was going to go to Ethan, but he's too easy of a target. So, uh, so here's the deal. We all, have, we all have genetics. And there is relatively good, long-standing uh, scientific proof that can show that certain genetic patterns in your DNA lead to violent behavior. This is not new. This is not fringe science. This is not speculative science. There's good, well-established science that shows that various genetic traits are associated with various actions and behaviors. So if you are genetically predisposed to be a violent, angry, murderous person, does that make it okay? Thank you. Okay. (laughs) But think about this, because this is where it starts to get really interesting. Most people, again, secular, this doesn't even have to bring God into the conversation. If it was something like violence, well, your genetics might play a part in that, but we would still say that that behavior is not okay. But why would it not be okay? Because if my genetics are telling me that's just, that's just who I am. I was born this way. I was, this, is, this is how my desires are. This is how I'm wired. You guys see where I'm going with this? Well, who's to say that, again, relatively good science, again, this is not fringe, you know, deep recesses of the internet science, relatively good science would show that there's genetic predispositions towards things like alcoholism or addiction. Does it make those things okay? Are you, just a, are you just a victim of fate? Are you just a victim of your genetics? Or do you actually have a choice in the matter? My, my point here is not to try to solve all of that right now, but I'm, I'm just wanting to show you that it's not just Christians that wrestle with this idea of, I, I feel responsible. I feel like I've got a choice. I feel like I've got agency. And yet, at the same time, it feels like there are these forces or things that are kind of beyond my scope or beyond my control that I'm pushing against. In the economy of the kingdom of God, we believe that God's sovereignty and human agency are somehow held together in tension. If you want a fancy word for it, in philosophy, this is known as compatibilism. Most, if not all, secular philosophies somehow have to tip the scales to one or the other, and yet we as Christians can say the Bible teaches both. We don't fully understand how it works behind the scenes, but we can trust God that his word is truthful and somehow God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility, human agency. Samson is morally responsible for his wrong choices. God is ultimately sovereign and in control, working in and through even Samson's sinful choices to bring about the desired outcome that God wants. 
Kay Lawson Younger, a Bible scholar, says this way, Yahweh's seeking, talking about seeking an opportunity to confront the Philistines, does not imply that he is inciting Samson's lustful desire for the Timnite woman. Rather, it suggests that Samson's sinful actions accord with Yahweh's will. God uses Samson in spite of his wrong motives and actions. From the following stories, it becomes clear that left to himself, Samson would never have become involved in God's or even in Israel's agenda. Left to themselves, the Israelites would have been satisfied to continue to coexist with the Philistines, but Yahweh has other plans. So that leads to the next question. Okay, well, if God's sovereign over all my choices and my desires, can I just do what I want then? If, if, if God's going to just ultimately work it all out, can I just, just steam ahead, soldier on? I'm just going to do what I want, and I'm going to trust that God is sovereign. He's just going to work it all out. Um, one of my first... One of my first interactions, sometimes, sometimes this idea of just really talking about God's sovereignty, uh, sometimes you'll, get, you'll hear it um, referred to as Calvinism because the guy, the dude, John Calvin, the great reformer, taught a lot about this or he emphasized some of these things. Sometimes, one of my first brushes with Calvinist theology was in a, a church that my dad was pastoring as a child. These dudes, they got saved, they met Jesus. They were like long-haired, heavy metal dudes and they were like all gung-ho about Jesus. Like, this is amazing. We just got saved. We want to we change the world. And then like one day they just disappeared. We never saw them again. And uh, my dad finally like, took me with them. I'm like nine years old going on pastoral calls with my dad. It's kind of cool. Uh, and he took me and we went to their apartment. We're like, bros, like, where'd you go? Like, you just disappeared. We haven't seen you for like months. They're like, oh, well, we, we found this thing called Calvinism and it says that God's sovereign. He just does, orchestrates everything. And so we're like just hanging out and playing video games because we figure God's just going to do what he wants to do through our lives. And it's cool. So we're just playing video games. What? <laughs> I remember being nine. I'm like, that is asinine. I don't even know if I knew the word asinine then. And I was like, that's asinine. The answer to that question is absolutely not. Verse, going back to that passage in 1 John that I, I read from, it says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let me put it to you plainly, Sound City. God's desires are more important than your desires. Now, God's desires need to take precedence in our lives, that we would seek to honor God, to follow God's ways more than we would seek to satisfy ourselves and satisfy our own desires. Now, these, these truths about God's sovereignty are given to us for two reasons. Number one, they're given to us. They're, they're never given to us so that we can just kick back and be lazy and just, I'm going to let go and let God. He'll just orchestrate it all. No, the, the idea of God's sovereignty is given to us, first of all, to humble us. He's God and we're not, Amen. But the second reason that God's sovereignty is taught to us is so that we can have great confidence in him when it looks like everything is falling apart, when it looks like your life is falling apart, when it looks like the world itself is coming apart at the seams, we can have confidence and say that death and devastation and destruction will not get the last word because our God is sovereign and he knows the end of the story. That's why God's sovereignty is taught to us in the scripture. Not so that we can just do whatever we want and trust that God's going to work it all out. He's so good and he's so powerful that if you really belong to him, he can take even that jacked up mindset and that jacked up idea and work with that. He's so good and he's so powerful. But please, if you're a Christian, my plea with you is walk in step with the spirit. 
Those things are passing away. The, the world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, which leads me to my last question for the morning. I want to ask this. Well then, okay, how, how can my desires change? How can my desires change? Friends, can we, can we see ourselves in Samson? His messed up desires his selfish desires, his lack of self-control, his lack of, of, you know, submitting to God's desires. Can you see yourself in Samson? I mean, I don't, I don't want to, like, take the mic around and start interviewing you, but, I mean, I, I have to admit, as I was studying and reading this passage this week, yep, 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 my, my desires often lead me astray. My desires get me into trouble. My desires, the things I want, the things I think that I need, oftentimes don't lead me to life and joy, closer relationship with God, closer relationship with others, but they result in a lot of brokenness. Can you see yourself in Samson, friends? Can you see the way that your desires have have caused hurt or pain or hardship in your lives? Can you think back on your life? Man, my, my desires, you know, the, the cultural catchphrase, you just got to follow your heart. Man, I'm terrified of my heart. I'm scared to death of my heart. Because left unchecked, I would, be, I would be a Samson. Only the lion would probably have eaten me, <laughs> just to be truthful. So how can, how can our desires change? Let me give you four Four things to think about as we close our time together. First is, you need to recognize your broken desires. Some of you aren't there. Some of you are are just going along and you're following your heart with great glee and great joy. And God's word sometimes cuts us. But God's word cuts us like like a surgeon's knife so that we can be healed. I love you. You are a mess. You are. Now, we're not here to celebrate that or to glory in that, but we do need to be truthful. We need to be honest. You are a mess. I am a mess. When I am at my lowest and at my worst, I can look back, and if I'm being totally honest and truthful, I have no one to blame but myself. We need to recognize our broken desires, see more of uh, Samson in us than, than we did before. Number two, we need to repent of choosing our own desires over God's. We need to come before God and say, God, I am sorry. I, I've, I've, I've got all these things that I want. I've got all these things that I, at least I think that I need. And I've been grasping for them in my own strength and my own effort. We need to repent, humble ourselves before God. God, I have placed my desires above your desires. Number three, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember the gospel. The gospel that says that even when we were great sinners, God gave his son for us. The gospel that says, for God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Friends, there is nobody who has not elevated their desires higher than God's. But there is no one who has done so to such a degree that they are beyond the reach of God's saving grace. Amen? That God sent his son, born of a woman, a miraculous angelic announced birth, who did not give full vent to his desires, but instead 
only did the will of the Father. You know that Jesus said that? I only do that which I see my Father doing. So whereas Samson's desires led him down a destructive path, Jesus' desires, his desire to honor God, his desire to save us. Do you know that it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross? What's that joy? To honor the Father and to rescue broken, messed up people like us. You need to remember the gospel in Romans 8.32 that says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about that. Think about what Paul is saying there. Your desires, things you want, things you think you need, if God was generous enough to give us his own son, do you not think that God will take care of anything and everything that you could possibly want or need, that you truly need? Not that you think you need, that you actually need. Do you see that, friends? The great lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden is that God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you. He's got something good. He's just not giving it to you. In the garden, it was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. For you, it might be some boyfriend or some girlfriend or some relationship or some financial accomplishment or some promotion at work or some house or some car or some material possession. Whatever it is you think that you need and you think that God's holding out on you, if you let those desires run wild, you're gonna find yourself in trouble. But if you remember the gospel that God has given us, his own son, you will find contentment. It's actually, it's actually, <laughs> Going back to the obligatory C.S. Lewis quote, it really is true. We're making mud pies in the slums. God's offering us a vacation at the beach. I'm glad I worked that back in, redeemed that. That's good. And then number four is regularly receive God's grace. This is why gathering together like this is so important. This is why community is so important. This is why we come and we, we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup together every single week to remind us it's not about our works or about our efforts. It's about God who is the giver of grace. In Psalm 107, it says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God, I pray for all of us right now. God, wherever our hearts are, wherever our desires are, I pray that you would remind us that not only have you given us your son, our ultimate need, our deepest need, but you satisfy us with good things. And as we come now to worship through giving and through singing and through the celebration of the Lord's table, I pray that we would find our desires satisfied in you deeper than ever before. We pray this in Jesus' good name, amen.